This is The Granite Beat, a podcast where we highlight New Hampshire journalists, ask them about recent stories they've published, and about what it's like to cover their corner of this small and interesting state. I'm Julie Hart, and I'm here with Adam Drapshow. Hello. Today, our guest comes to us from the Keene Sentinel's Monadnock Region Health Reporting Lab. Olivia Belanger's work is funded by several sources, including the Sentinel, local businesses, and private donors. She'll share her experience working on a project with less than traditional funding and the path that brought her to journalism. Welcome, Olivia. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Olivia, could you describe the path that brought you to journalism, what attracted you to the profession, and what role do you see reporters fulfilling in today's age? Sure. Yeah, I got into journalism because when I was in high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do once I you know, went to college mm-hmm. and, you know, like a lot of high school students. And I had a teacher, actually, an English teacher who had noticed that I was pretty good at nonfiction writing. And he said, why don't you consider journalism as a career? And it was something that I had never even thought about. And honestly, I just took that and decided to enroll as a journalism major at Keene State College. And from there, I really loved the craft as I was learning it. As far as the role that I think that journalists play, I think it's a lot different. And I think that it continues to evolve as the years progress. Like when I was in college, I was still definitely being taught, you know, that you need to be completely unbiased. You need to completely separate yourself from the story. Now it feels almost more like we're going towards the age of wanting a little bit of yourself in your interview or a little bit of yourself in your story, a little bit of your voice. And that's something that's been really interesting to kind of learn along the way. And on top of that, I mean, we're really a one man band now. It's not just, you know, me with my reporter's notebook. It's me with my camera and, you know, my my recorder in case I want to do a podcast or an audio thing or I'm, you know, recording it for social media. So it's a lot different than it used to be. You know, 10 years ago is a lot different than it was five years ago. And I think it's going to continue to evolve from there. Ah, interesting. That story about not knowing what you want to do and having an instructor pushing into journalism is rings very true for me as well. Yeah. Could you tell us about the Keen Health Lab? How is it funded and structured? How is it different or similar to a conventional newsroom health desk? Yeah, so I have been the health reporter for the Sentinel since August of 2019. And then around last fall, Myself and the president and CEO of the Sentinel sat down and he wanted to start a new project with a different funding model because, you know, though we're doing really well at the Sentinel and we continue to grow, there's always opportunities to find different avenues and different ways to make ourselves better. And so he had this idea to create a lab where we really can just play around and figure out the best ways to structure a beat. So health is something that affects everybody. Mm -hmm. That's why we decided on the health beat. And I was also the most senior reporter at the time. So it just made sense. And so in February of this year, we launched the lab. And what that entails is it's a completely donor-funded model. So instead of me being paid through ad revenue and other revenue sources in a traditional newspaper sense, it's, you know, people who are just donating money to us. It's businesses. It's grant money. It's a bunch of different things, which gives us a lot more wiggle room in terms of like, you know, my salary, the things that I can pay for, like I could have a little bit of a travel budget. I went this May to a summit for solutions journalism over in Utah that was paid for through this donor model. So opportunities that I wouldn't have gotten if we stuck with the traditional structure. And then beyond that, I'm no longer doing the daily health story anymore. So I don't have to, you know, come up with that daily quota. Now I'm able to take, you know, a month or two months to interview, you know, 
20 people about one topic that I just find interesting that I think would be helpful for the region rather than, you know, just saying, oh, well, I need a story for tomorrow. So I better call the person that I know will answer the phone at 3 p.m., you know, because my other story fell through. And then on top of that, a, a couple of other things. So I'm doing a weekly newsletter on health, and that's been really interesting and fun for me to really use my own voice and get have people get to know me and some of the things that I've struggled with, whether it's mental health or, you know, just finding a primary care provider or mm-hmm. any of these things, you know, kind of, again, peeling back that curtain in a way that shows people who I am a little bit more, but still, you know, draws that line between journalist and, and you know, person. Well, let's take an example of some recent work that you've done to try and, as an example, to see how this works. You recently published a story about the direct primary care model. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us, first of all, what that is, then how you came to know about this as a possible story idea, why you decided that it was worthy of an investigation, and then what you learned through the course of that investigation. Yeah, so all of the stories, because technically my title now is Health Solutions Reporter, so all of them are trying to have some sort of solutions journalism lens, which for folks who don't know, it's rather than just saying, you know, we have a problem, it's saying, here's somebody who's trying to fix the problem. So direct primary care is one thing that I had heard about a couple of times. Basically, the idea is that rather than going through an insurance company, you pay a doctor a monthly fee for your primary care needs, and then you can go see that doctor as many times as you want within that given month. You have more direct access to your provider. And there's, you know, pros and cons to that, which I can get into. But yeah, the idea came from it because I had written about two facilities locally who offer that care, but I really hadn't scratched the surface there. It was just, you know, these exist and these are a model for you, but we know that we have a primary care physician shortage. We know that what we have to offer for health in the Monadnock region isn't great. You know, it's hard to find a provider, hard to find a provider additionally that, you know, you like and enjoy, never mind just finding yeah. one in the first place. So I decided to just take a month or so to talk with not only the ones that are local here who are doing the direct primary care, but also one ones across the state, ones across the country. There's one person that I spoke to who has been doing that over in Michigan, and she has had a lot lot of luck with getting a lot of patients there, and they're actually expanding further into the Midwest, which is huge, only in a couple years in. But basically, the benefit of direct primary care is you do get that direct access, you get better patient experiences, but at the same time, you're not getting, you know, if you can't afford that monthly fee, there's nothing really that you can do about that. You know, it's it ranges from about $35 to $150 I found in New Hampshire. And for some folks that might be doable and, and you know, totally affordable, but yeah. for other people, myself included, you know, that's something that I could never swing. So it's one solution for, you know, a good chunk of the population, but for some folks, it's still not manageable. So I really just dove into that and tried to explain as best as I could, here's what this model is. And here's how you can sign up for it if you're interested. But here are also some of the setbacks there and why it's not like a perfect solution at this point for primary care. Do you think it's a model that we'll see more of? What do you think the emergence of direct primary care tells us about the more conventional care arrangement? Yeah. So I think that we can tell from this and from just other aspects of the health landscape that we know today that people are really frustrated whether it's I have a primary care provider that I've had for a long time and I just don't feel like I'm getting enough out of those visits or, you know, I can't even find one and I don't know where to turn because every option I try, either that person leaves after, you know, one visit or I just don't feel satisfied with the level of care that I got. And I know for a lot of 
folks who are on the younger side or the healthier side, they've just kind of given up on primary care completely because they're like, I, I just can't find anybody, you know, that's worth my time or I can't afford the copay or, you know, I don't have insurance, whatever, the, you know, whatever the, the issue is. So I think that we'll see more direct primary care opening up. I think that we'll see more independent practices in general opening up. I mean, in New Hampshire, I don't think it's a secret that we have Dartmouth Health that owns a ton of health offices. We have Concord Hospital over in the Concord area that owns a lot of hospitals and health options. So I think that people are really gravitating more towards, you know, that family owned practice or that independent practice just to get more of that human experiences that we really are craving in every setting, especially after the pandemic, but definitely with your provider. Have you had any any feedback on that story since it's been published? I have heard, you know, from a few of the people that I interviewed that felt like, you know, it, it portrayed the model pretty well, but I haven't heard from anybody in terms of like, oh, I'm going to sign up for this or, you know, I had a positive negative experience with that model. What's something that you're working on right now? What's something that readers should keep a lookout for? Yeah. So um, I'm actually working on my own podcast right oh, now. Okay. It's very, very new, but it's one of the things that we really wanted to embark on with the lab is, you know, more multimedia stuff. That's what my minor is in. So just, you know, using that part of my brain more. I don't know, have a ton of information yet as to like when it's coming out, but it's going to be about invisible illnesses. So each episode will follow a person who has some sort of invisible illness. So whether that's a substance use disorder or epilepsy or just a mental health disorder like depression or anxiety and what it's really like to live with those symptoms. So it'll be a mini series podcast that hopefully will launch, you know, within the next couple of months. That sounds like a great podcast idea. Thanks. Yeah. So I'm very excited. I haven't used my podcast or audio brain in a long time. So I'm excited to fine tune that and, and get back into it. But yeah, very excited for that project. Well, very good. Julie, I think you have some, uh, a couple questions. Yeah. Olivia, would you tell us what it's been like working in a philanthropically funded newsroom? Do you still have editorial control? How much input do you get from your funders? How much or little does that change your daily process? For me, I haven't noticed like any change at all, which has been really great. And we've been really open and honest. I mean, I haven't been doing, you know, the funding part of it. That's been our president. But when he's having conversations with potential donors, he's making it very clear that, you know, you're not going to have any sort of editorial control over the content, similar to what we would do with ads, right? You know, something that we've been doing for years and years where just because you put an ad in the paper doesn't mean we're going to sway one way or the other. And people have been really understanding of that. And as far as I know, we haven't had any pushback. Do you see this model of grant funding, donor funded? Do you see this uh, as, I know that the Keen Health Lab is not the first example in the world of this sort of model. Do you see this as proliferating more beyond where what it already has done? I hope so. I think that our goal, you know, we're going to do this for a couple of years and see how it goes and see if it's sustainable. And if it is, we might be expanding that into other beats in the newsroom, whether it's criminal justice or education or environment. I think it gives me a lot of opportunity to grow and to just dive a little bit deeper. And I think that it's a really strong model that other people could definitely implement in their own newsrooms. Well, thank you so much for taking some time to explain for us your position there and what it's like to, to do your job. Yeah, of course. Anytime. The Granite Beat is a project of the Granite State News Collaborative in partnership with the Laconia Daily Sun. We record at the Lakeport Opera House, and our theme music is composed by Bob McCarthy. Thanks also to the Marlon Fitzwater Center at Franklin Pierce University for editing and other support. 